Warning, this is not your father's history. This is not the history your coach taught you in high school. And you won't find it on the History Channel either. No, you see, this is the history your mother warned you about. This is History Against the Grain. Your hosts, Chris Paget and Josh Weiner. We don't believe you, because we the people. Episode 19, Yosemite. History Against the Grain is back after a week-long absence. I hope you guys survived that absence well. As you know, as I talked about last time, I was down in my underground bunker. I figured with things going the way they were, that if I took my family down for eight or nine days by the time I got out, things would be better. Um, I haven't checked the news, Chris. Are things better? It's hard to know where to start. Uh, The pandemic is over. The bars are full. Donald Trump resigned. AOC is now president. Greg Popovich, vice president. There's universal health care now, Josh, and perhaps most shocking of all, the San Francisco Giants are in contention for a World Series. (laughs) I guess I went down for exactly the right amount of time then. I I feel like I should get credit for all these, these changes that have happened then. And I'm not going to check the news. I'm not going to check your, uh, your arguments there. I'm just going to assume that everything you just said was true. You know, I'm glad you came back. You, you did your, uh, you know, your trip through the desert, as it were, uh, you and the fam. And I know you saw a lot of spectacular things. I'm happy you returned now back through the veil to the land of milk and honey. Yeah, I mean, it really is. I, I'm thinking of, you know, pioneer times, your favorite part of history, westward expansion, right? Your favorite part of the American history uh survey but uh how the west yeah, how the was, west was one. but um you know you go through these landscapes in in like nevada and, and utah is is so beautiful in many ways but it's so desolate at the same time and then as soon as you get into california it's just like a different thing there's like civilization and people and stuff happening and um, my my children were so sick of nevada by the end i know that you have a you have a deep history <laughs> with nevada but they didn't want to spend another minute in nevada by by the the drive back just because there's nothing for Hours and hours and hours, no cars, no people, no buildings, uh, nothing to, to latch on to. So it's good to be back in a, in a decay, even in a decaying, decaying civilization. It's good to be back. Well, I would think it would give you a, a kind of fresh perspective on things, you know, uh, the stark beauty, I would say. Some would say monotony of, uh, of the, you know, Intermountain West, uh, the Great Basin, the Big Sky Country. Uh, what are your takeaways? Well, one of the fun, I, I mean, I, I agree with you. I find I find the landscape beautiful. I, f- I do find the desolation even even beautiful. Just the lack of people. The you know the night sky, which is unencumbered by all the lights of the city. It's it is something that's pretty remarkable, and I I, I definitely appreciate it. One thing that, that did strike me though, is driving through all these landscapes, there's no people anywhere, but everything's still fenced. Americans love their fences. We're driving through these landscapes and it's these, you know, these cliffs and these, you know, canyons and all these things. And running along it is this little barbed wire fence, you know, this two foot high barbed wire fence. It's like who, who's being kept out by this barbed wire fence? Why is it necessary to mark property in this way in this landscape where nobody could possibly even live? You know, there's this argument about about the English and English colonists that, you know, one of the one of the ways they interpreted the American you know, North America when they got here is that the Indians didn't occupy the land because they didn't fence it in and the, and the English saw property as something you mm-hmm. fenced in. And so one of the first things they did is try to take this, what they called wilderness and then put fences around it to, to kind of mark 
now this has been this is an improved landscape and maybe that's still the legacy that you have these uh, these desolate landscapes with no living things visible anywhere and still this need to fence miles and miles and miles of of the landscape yeah that's uh you know that's barbed wire and i i mean i don't want to go all did you know historian on you but you know barbed wire coming out of um the industrial revolution right yeah um Cleveland, if I remember, I think it was Glidden, um, guy who was probably more famous for paint, was also the uh, you know sort of titular inventor of barbed wire. But it, it, you can make a really nice argument that you know more than all the vaunted you know ideals, and and this is something we're going to talk a lot about today in in this episode, the the ideals of the American story, the sort of manifest destiny story of the American West. You know, rugged individualism, sturdy pioneer spirit. Um, heck, even the you know Winchester repeating rifle. That really, of of all the tools that Anglo uh, people brought to the West, that was most effective at consolidating, you know, the authority and the sovereignty of the United States over the vast stretches, you know, of of the West was the was barbed wire. Yeah. I mean, taking these massive spaces, and that's the thing, you know, the other thing you notice is just th- this land is so large. Uh, you know, there's entire countries in Europe that, you know, that are smaller than than what you can just see from the window of your car at, at times. But but like I was saying, it's still, um, it's not absent of, of human works at all, even though it seems so desolate. Uh, and that's, that's absolutely is an effect of that barbed wire. Yeah, the environmental historian um, William Cronin calls that second nature. Those, that is, those things you see out in what would otherwise appear to be a kind of untouched landscape really is itself been, to some extent, you know, re-engineered, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so you see the evidences of that, like something like fence posts and telephone poles and, you know, any number, you know, list of, of uh, additions or add-ons or um, adaptations to the environment. And Josh, you might be interested to know that, you know, when I was coming up through the ranks um, of grammar school, that, you know, we would sing uh, patriotic songs. And uh, I'm talking the second, third, fourth grade, uh, we'd, we'd take a break from, you know, learning about the solar system or something and, and sing songs. And we would sing the armed services yeah. songs, yeah. So like the Marine Corps hymn. Yeah, I still know all know? those. Because of, okay, yeah. Anchors Away, I think, was the Navy one. Uh, but one of the songs that would slip in there, and now, you know, as an adult and as a historian, I, I can appreciate the irony of this, was Woody Guthrie's This Land is Your Land. We must have the same music teacher in elementary school. Did we, you sing those? Yeah, too? these are yeah, exact song, like, songs we did, too. Okay, California Public Education System. Um, and, you know, the story behind that is, uh, you know, that he had read... Uh, or excuse me, that Woody Guthrie had become angry uh, at the popularity of Irving Berlin's God Bless America, mm-hmm. which Berlin actually, if memory serves, I think he had first written it during World War One, but it became popular again as this sort of anthem, uh, you know, even in the in the Depression and certainly in World War Two, and and that really irked, you know, Woody. Uh, who was you know sort of the you know the the people's singer troubadour, kind of lefty you know um, uh, singer radical type you know and and so he writes uh, this land is your land is a protest song in effect a response to to God bless America by Irving Berlin which is the one of the classic songs of American 
exceptionalism, uh, a theme of our program today. And all right, so the point is, he writes a song, but one of the verses that never gets sung, I mean, you, you get these sort of, you know, rhapsodic verses about the beauty of the landscape and, and whatnot. And, you know, you can do a whole deep dive in, you know, into sort of Native American people, you know, understand right. what he got through this land is your land. But anyway, it was meant to be a kind of populist ode to the, the free availability of the open spaces to anyone, mm -hmm. you know, and... And yet at the very end, the, one of the last verses, and it's hard to find, you, you can get off of, uh, you know, uh, iTunes music or something. Uh, one that Arlo Guthrie, his son did, where they kind of mashed up uh, Woody's original with Arlo because he brought in the last verse, which was usually cut off. And it has the singer looking at a private property or no trespassing sign, mm -hmm. you know, on one of these fences somewhere out in the, you know, in the great, you know, West. And the singer says on one side, it said private property. And on the other side, that sign didn't say nothing. Right. You know, and so that that, that was Woody Guthrie's sort of, uh, you know, uh, rejoinder protest. Yeah. yeah, rejoinder to, you know, to the claims of property um, and and to the enclosing, especially of these these spaces, mm -hmm. these large Western spaces. So. Yeah, a protest song that makes its way into, you know, your elementary school song curriculum where it's pretty much repurposed as a kind of patriotic song. How galling is it that we have a national anthem written by a, a racist lawyer, right? It, when you can make the case that one of the greatest strengths of, Amer of America, if you want to talk about American exceptionalism, you know, our history of songwriting, our history of music is, to me, the most exceptional thing. And yet this amazing history of, of all these this music and, and songwriting, we've got to national anthem written by a racist lawyer instead of, for instance, Woody Guthrie or any of the many, many others, brilliant songwriters we've had over the past, uh, you know, century and a half or however long you want to go back. Um, we got to change that, right? Yeah, we do. You know, because I'm sensing you don't necessarily think that's a coincidence. Mm. What, that our racist lawyer is the one who wrote our national anthem? Yeah, yeah, because, you know, as we're going to talk about today, I mean, there is a thread here, right? You know, as we talk about American exceptionalism, uh, you're going to come back in the last segment to talk about how power takes care of itself. And, and you know, it's pretty easy to define in a system such as ours, you know, power is as involving, you know, property relations and private claims of private property and fencing in, you know, vast spaces of the West and that sort of thing. And, you know, who are, who are ultimately the great sort of guardians of, you know, legal guardians of private property, but lawyers and and uh, and so the fact that we have one, which in Francis Scott Key's day, you know, included also uh, human property, right? Slavery. Yeah. Uh, that, that it would be in a system dedicated to property, it would be befitting to have a national anthem <laughs> penned by <laughs> a lawyer. <laughs> this is why I like recording with you, because I, I make these throwaway lines and you actually <laughs> put some uh, import behind them. So hey, I'm listening. I appreciate that. Yeah. That's exactly what I meant. Yes, that's what I meant to say. Yes, <laughs> that's exactly the point I was trying to make. Thank you for well, you know, it does lead us into I think a fruitful discussion as we move now, you know, from our intro uh, into what is it we'll call the marrow of of episode nineteen. Well
one of the things that happened, and I think, Josh, it, it had happened before you left on your desert uh, sojourn. The Weiner family on the desert sojourn across America's trackless expanse of yeah. the West uh, was that uh, our, our, our friend and uh, U.S. Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas uh, doubled down on his, uh, you know, kind of, you know, right wing, you know, war of rhetoric uh, to uh, propose a bill in the U.S. Senate. Uh, this is back, I think, around the 23rd or 24th uh, of last month, proposes a bill in the U.S. Senate uh, called uh, the Saving American History Act of 2020. The Saving American History Act of, of 2020, which, uh, as it turns out, is uh, proposing a prohibition on federal professional development funds, that is, federal money given to schools, that teach the 1619 project. Oh boy! What our uh, yeah, our listeners will will recall is something that we've spent some time talking about here on History Against the Grain. Yeah, I, I thought it, I, I thought I was going to support this bill because I like history, and he said he was going to save history. But now that you explain it, I'm not so into it anymore. It could be called <laughs> the Anti History Against the Grain Act too. <laughs> I think we were being targeted well, I, by that. I was going to say, we're in his sights. Um, at least we're doing our level best to be. Uh, this, you know, gr granted, in the culture wars, it's it's not particularly difficult to find somebody saying or doing something, uh, you know, outlandish with respect to, you know, claims of, of, of history. So, uh, you know, it's coming in hot and heavy these days. And I think, you know, uh, those like Tom Cotton have been rather emboldened now, in, in this age of Trump, you know, where, you, you know, saying anything, uh, whatever, you know, breach of decorum it might have seemed uh, maybe in a more formal uh, time, you know, is, is absolutely permissible. And, you know, not not that, you know, having certain views of history, whether it be, you know, uh, right leaning or left leaning or whatever, that that's necessarily unusual. But just the the utter, uh, I guess what I would call, you know, temerity, <laughs> you know, of United States Senator, uh, you know, proposing to censor, or as the more popular saying goes these days to cancel, right? Uh, an inquiry into the past uh, involving slavery is you know i listen i give senator tom cotton high marks you know just for uh you know his his complete lack of shame how's that yeah what he's got gall unmitigated gall i love the, the term unmitigated gall because you really don't use the word unmitigated that often unless it comes before the word gall um but yeah he's got unmitigated gall to uh to do this especially what's what's so ironic is that when he he put that uh, or he wrote that op-ed in the New York Times, uh, it led to the firing of I think it's James Bennett, the editorial page editor, and that became one of the uh, the arguments against what's so-called cancel culture is that you know we can't have a free discussion of ideas because if anybody says something unpopular, then all this stuff happens. And now you have Jane, uh, Tom Cotton, I almost called him James Cotton, Tom Cotton, uh, the uh, you know this this guy who's being defended by these. Uh, these believers in the free exchange of ideas, literally using the power of the government now, not just yelling at somebody on Twitter, but using the power of the government to literally try to cancel uh, a set of ideas that he finds um, unbecoming of, of, you know, what he sees as 
you know, this American ideal. So, yeah, for sure. It, it, the reason why it's unmitigated goal versus, I, I guess, mitigated, mitigated goal, yeah. uh, which would be, uh, you know, a lesser form of goal is that, the, I mean, it's rife with contradictions, as you point out. Uh, you know, typically, the you know, the Republicans are, as, as uh, President Reagan, you know, said, Ronald Reagan said, you know, government isn't the solution to the problem. Government is the problem, right. unless you're trying to control history curriculum, apparently, yeah. or, you know, for that matter, sending stormtroops into Portland or any other of a hundred things we've seen, you know, in this regime. Um it's worth taking a, a moment, I suppose, to look at some of the language. I bothered to look it up, the bill itself, and I don't know where it is uh, with the standing of the bill currently. If it was, it, both of us, I think, Josh, said it was mostly a, a kind of publicity stunt to play, as they say, to his base. But I bothered to actually look it up to see what it said. And he mentions the 16 Project specifically. And so, you know, part of me was thinking, well, you know, it's easy enough to get around a federal statute, right? Say, I'm not. I'm not teaching the 1619 project. I'm teaching what I call the 1620 project, right, right. Josh. <laughs> you know, uh, but but it does mention it uh, specifically. Um, people always claim they they can't remember dates, but it's in there. 1619. It says the bill says the 1619 project is a racially divisive and revisionist account of history that threatens the integrity of the union. Oof. By denying the true principles on which it was founded. And by union, I suppose he means the United States of America. It seems like kind of an anachronistic. I don't think he's talking about the Teamsters. I think no, that's funny. the integrity of the union. I've heard, I've heard people use union like that a few times recently. And it's, you're right, it sounds anachronistic, but there must be some kind of memo going around that says uh, we got to refer to it that way. I think maybe because they're trying to present uh, you know, a place like Portland as this emerging civil war with the... Mm-hmm. Uh, you know the the non-government forces being like the the South. I think I've, I, Tom Cotton made that case as well. I don't know if you saw that. Oh no, I haven't. So I wonder if there's a connection there between this rhetoric of these these rebels uh, in places like Portland and Oakland and Chicago, all these places that Trump wants to send federal forces as being the the beginnings of a you know Southern style secession movement, uh, and they're there to protect the Union. <laughs> Uh, well, the ironies are manifold. That's, again, why it's unmitigated. Because, yeah, I, I, you can't make this up. I mean, if you were going to invent a racist, male, white, southern politician, you could do a lot worse than naming him Cotton. Yeah. It's, it's incredible. So he says the federal government in the bill now has a strong interest in promoting an accurate account of the nation's history through public schools and forming young people into knowledgeable and patriotic citizens. Uh, you know, I mean, look, it seems absurd on its face. You know, he's, he's saying we need to put, you know, young people, we need to transform them into knowledgeable citizens, but he wants to keep something out of a curriculum. <laughs> right. You know? <laughs> Not that kind of knowledge. So, no, he's not talking about that yeah. kind of knowledge. The other kind of knowledge. Yeah, well, when he says knowledge, he means. Uh, but hey, at least, you know what, uh, Josh, it does stipulate at the end of the bill uh, that the federal funding for hot lunches will not be affected. That's uh, good. That a school uh, meal uh, funding will not be affected by the reduction due to anyone teaching 1619. So they. All right, I've come around they, on it they, then. They, 
they may want to they may want to keep those students knowledgeable, but they don't want to starve them to death. Apparently, at least not at school. They can starve them other places. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, look, it plays well. You know, in 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 I'm sure certain you know constituencies, uh, and 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 it does raise because as I was reading, you know, reading the bill. It prompts a question. I mean, this is this is the United States Senate, after all. This is the federal government. Uh, you know, it gets into those issues of sovereignty we've been talking about and claims of power uh, on other episodes. Uh, and it and it really made me wonder. You know, as a kind of instrumentality of power. You know, uh, not not to say that the bill will pass or become law, but even even the proposal of it. You know, it, it it speaks to the importance on some level, political, uh, certainly, of a narrative about power. You know, in other words, this this is what America is. This is who because, you know, slavery was about power, too. But uh, it's now being reframed, I guess, in, in Cotton's you know memo here uh, to the world about what American power really represents. And and so, you know, to invoke the power of the federal government to control the narrative by by precluding the discussion of slavery, uh, you know, strikes me as very, very interesting. And it gets at what, you know, we're talking about in the episode today, this idea of exceptionalism, as mm-hmm. if, you know, for for power to be legitimate, it has to enshrine itself as unlike or or exceptional to the regular run of history you know uh, that is extraordinary exceptional you know we could think of other ways of describing this singular um as part of its own claim of power and so we want to play a piece here uh from a television show from a few years ago called the uh the newsroom with uh, the actor jeff daniels and the show wasn't on for more than a season, I think. But this one piece you can find on YouTube, it became pretty well known for a while, where the character Jeff Daniels plays as a kind of, you know, sort of cynical, seen it all, you know, kind of, uh, you know, reporter is asked uh, by an audience member. He's, a, he's doing a panel presentation with some others and they're kind of goading him, you know, to because they know he says outrageous things. He's kind of a you know cranky, curmudgeonly guy, and they're trying to go to him, and he won't take the bit until finally a young woman stands up in the audience and says, "Well, would you like to address the question of why America is the greatest country in in the world?" And so let's listen to what uh, the character played by Jeff Daniels has to say. And with a straight face, you're going to tell students that America is so star-spangled awesome that we're the only ones in the world who have freedom. Canada has freedom. Japan has freedom. The UK, France, Italy, Germany, Spain, Australia, Belgium has freedom. So 207 sovereign states in the world, like 180 of them have freedom. All right. And yet you, uh, sorority girl, just in case you accidentally wander into a voting booth one day, there's some things you should know. And one of them is 
There is absolutely no evidence to support the statement that we're the greatest country in the world. We're seventh in literacy, 27th in math, 22nd in science, 49th in life expectancy, 178th in infant mortality, third in median household income, number four in labor force, and number four in exports. We lead the world in only three categories. Number of incarcerated citizens per capita, number of adults who believe angels are real, and defense spending, where we spend more than the next 26 countries combined, 25 of whom are allies. Now, none of this is the fault of a 20-year-old college student, but you nonetheless are, without a doubt, a member of the worst period, generation period ever, period. So when you ask what makes us the greatest country in the world, I don't know what the f you're talking about. Yosemite? All right, so that uh, segment, uh, you know, is, is is a lot of fun in some ways because Jeff Daniels is in top form there. The part that we didn't play, you know, the the part that that the the next lines of dialogue that come after that, however, do something I found you know equally, you know, interesting. Having established essentially what is unexceptional about America in the contemporary context compared to other nations of the world. Uh, Jeff Daniels goes on then to say that, but we once were, that there was a time in the past uh, which America really truly was exceptional. And he, he goes to that kind of uh, familiar uh, toolkit of, of, you know, American ideals, you know, democracy, selflessness, hard work, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I think that's interesting, Josh, because even for what was supposed to be a kind of edgy bit about how, how the American star had fallen, uh, there's still a fundamental, you know, belief that it's, you know, maybe temporary, you know, and that it can be redeemed and that, that, that the original, you know, ideal of American exceptionalism could itself be somehow redeemed. And, and you know, I find this so interesting because when Americans talk that way, uh, they sort of assume, I guess, that, you know, the reason we call it exceptional is that America is unique in, in this regard historically. That, that is, champion, the champion of these values, you know, sort of stands alone in history. Uh, but, you know, you sent me a, a very, you know, interesting quote by, by Ann Stoller, a book we've both been looking at on you know, sort of the history of American imperialism. And Stoller writes, global events have placed empires under new scrutiny, helping to remind us that exceptionalism is a shared self-description of imperial forms and that every empire imagines itself an exception. Yeah, absolutely. Because if you didn't, if you weren't exceptional, then why do you get to control all this land, right? That there's got to be some argument for why this particular polity, this particular state, this particular group of people should dominate such a large swath of the Earth's surface. Um, and if you can't make the case for your own exceptionality, then then it ends up being this, this kind of hollow claim claim to land. So yeah, every empire has believed that it was the, the greatest paragon of whatever they were making the case for. Um, you know, thinking back to Tom Cotton and his argument about 1619, what he's doing it's excel, is itself not very exceptional either. I mean, you look at just the entire idea of the nation and the emergence of nationalism in the 19th century, one of the big things that happens then is that the nation comes to control its own idea of history, right? That there's a real, very real case that, that the professional study of history emerges along with the emergence of the idea of nationalism. And I don't remember if we've talked about this before or not, but you know, the job of the historian, of the professional historian, is to tell the story of the nation in a way that makes the nation seem 
exceptional in, in one way or another. Um, and, you know, even in the contemporary world, it's not that exceptional for uh, a politician to want to control the narrative in the way that Tom Cotton is suggesting. Just to give two examples, in Japan, um, this has been this kind of back and forth, but I believe it, currently now um, it is very difficult to get into Japanese history textbooks any mention of uh, Japanese atrocities in World War II, that that's been kind of whitewashed away. Um, the Japanese have uh, at various points apologized and tried to make some amends for what happened in World War II, and other times have gone back on those uh, those apologies and, and suggested that those atrocities were, um, you know, were exaggerated or they didn't happen the way that they, they, they uh, people said they happened or whatever the case in, in uh, modern day Turkey. Mentions of the Armenian genocide are also uh, very hard to get into the public sphere, certainly not in textbooks, but it, they're even hard to talk about, you know, in, in public in any way. Um, now, it's one thing to say these other countries are doing that. We'd like to think the United States you know, again, in this narrative of exceptionality, that we shouldn't do that. We should have this free and open exchange of ideas. And yet it's always been the case that American history and the study of American history has been a very narrow study. Uh, it's been focused on very particular things and very important parts of the narrative have long been left out, even before Tom Cotton came along to try to pass his, uh, what is it called, the 1619 Act or the Anti-1619 Act? <laughs> it might as well be. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's part of what you're talking about there is this idea that, you know, nations and empires require a usable past, mm -hmm. right? You know, a past that can do the work of sovereignty. Yeah. Uh, in other words, to, to you know, reinforce the claims of sovereignty, whether it be a system of government or laws or property or what have you, uh, that these otherwise arbitrary claims you know, of one particular class of, say, propertied interests versus a class uh, without property uh, interests, that somehow those, you know, those claims of that property class are valid. Right. You know, in other words, the, the reason why you can't jump over my fence, you know, you know, we're out in the middle of, of you know, the Great Basin of Nevada <laughs> uh, in what would seemingly be a commons you know, uh, if there ever was one, you know, a, a landscape of, of, you know, common attachment to anybody who happens to venture there is nevertheless fenced off. And the reason you can't just jump over that fence and set up your tent, which I think is what you guys did. You did some gonzo camping, didn't you? Uh, it was on federal land. It was legal. I don't, I don't want to be, be uh, I don't want to get arrested <laughs> based on things said in this podcast. No, it was perfectly legal uh, federal camping. We didn't even see the, the Bundys out there trying to protect their, their right to graze on, on that federal land. <laughs> well, and, and they they buy into that as cattle ranchers and as, as property owners. And the reason why those claims are somehow valid, why you, why you didn't just, you know, throw caution to the wind and, and presume to camp wherever you wanted to, is that uh, in some sense, that story of sovereignty, that history, even of, of exceptionalism, and how uh, exceptional are American ideals and relations that that it, it does its job. That is, that usable past does its job because it keeps you from, you know, trespassing, let's say, or yeah. something like that. Um, and you're going to talk in the last segment today a bit more about that, about how power, you know, how, how these narratives of a national past, an exceptional past, really, I mean, when you just peel back a couple of layers, are really pretty much you know, bald-faced, uh, you know, claims for power, in, right. you know, uh, or, or some, you know, claims of sovereignty or something, although they get dressed up in 
romantic and patriotic and you know other other um, sort of garb. Uh, so here's here's what I propose for my my piece today is you know thinking about what Tom Cotton said about 1619. Let me let me let me you know uh, Shakespeare said what you know what's in a name? Well I, you know I want to say what's in a date. You know, 1619 versus what, Tom Cotton? Uh, traditionally, when we teach U.S. history, we take a date like maybe, oh, what, 1619? No, 1620. That's the year Plymouth Rock, mm-hmm. you know, the pilgrims arrive. Or, or you know, maybe the traditional first, you know, of English colonization is Jamestown, right? Jamestown, right. Virginia, 1607. So let's say, you know, what's in a date? 1619 versus 1607. And the thing is, you know, Josh, is is that, you know, if we set aside, you know, the burden of carrying that flag of exceptionalism and we actually look at the history itself without without that kind of lens, you know, what what we see is that 1619 and 1607 have a great deal in common. And so there's a kind of false, you know, dichotomy for Cotton to suggest that, you know, if you take 1619, you end up with one kind of story. If you take 1607, you end up with another. I would say that's a storyteller's conceit. I mean, mm-hmm. you can say anything about anything using any date. Right. But if we take the historical, you know, the burden of history here seriously, what we see is there's not really a dime's worth of difference between 1607 and 1619, just in terms of the history itself. Now, you know, as a politician, Tom Cotton is familiar with the idea of spin and spin doctoring. And historians, whether they like to admit it or not, often do that as as well. But what I'm here arguing today is that if we remove ourselves a little bit from that spin, you know, what Hayden White called implotment, you know, of of creating a storyline in advance such that 1607 tells the story of freedom, democracy, liberty, uh, progressive values that Tom Cotton might, uh, you know, embrace versus 1619, which, as he imagines it in his fever dream, uh, results in a story of slavery and the lack of liberty, you know, rendering illegitimate somehow the claims of power in American history, that these are just story storyteller conceits because the history does well enough, I think, that's on, on its own terms. And if we approach it honestly, what what we see is you know is is a bigger story that really doesn't have much to do with exceptionalism at all, whether you choose sixteen nineteen or sixteen oh seven. Let me see if I can explain what I mean here. I've been reading a, a book. I have a little project going on. It has me reading again some early colonial history and a historian we both know, John Thornton, uh, and his wife Linda Haywood actually co-authored a book. Um, Oh, about, uh, I guess now about 10, 12 years ago, called Central Africans, Atlantic Creoles, and the Foundation of the Americas. And, you know, we'll put this up on the on the website. Uh, but but that title is not, uh, I mean, is, is provocative, certainly for reasons I won't go into, uh, but mostly because it's featuring African people as central in the early history of America. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the even more interesting thing for our discussion today is that it's 1585, that is his chronology, 1585 to 1660. So he's not using any of the more familiar uh, dates associated with American exceptionalism, you know, not 1607, not 1620, or others that he might have. He's using 1585 to 1660. And the reason for that, and he has good reason for it, 
uh, really gets to this issue of American exceptionalism, which is often, by the way, I should hasten to add here, claims of American exceptionalism are often rooted in this early formative period of America's colonial history, right? And, and, and for politicians on the stump, there's no more dependable, you know, reliable reference to history. Even Trump has used it. Okay, a guy who I'm pretty sure has never cracked the spine of a single history book by opening up the pages. You don't think he's read, he though, hasn't read Alan Taylor, are you saying? I, I, I'm not sure that he has, you know, or, or you know, any, any sort of book. But okay, uh, even his own ghost-written book that he likes to flaunt, uh, The Art of the Deal. But <laughs> um, no, seriously, I mean, I... Yeah, in a you know in a political uh, sort of speech making world, there's no more reliable reference than to uh, what was reputedly uh, said by by John Winthrop, uh, the leader of the Puritan colony of New England, uh, known as Massachusetts Massachusetts Bay, you know back in the sixteen um, early 1600s, 1630 in fact when the Puritans arrived in that you know epochal moment that becomes then the sort of mainstay of the American exceptionalism story, that they would be, the Puritans would be, said uh, John Winthrop, a city upon a hill. A city upon a hill, Josh. You probably heard that phrase before, huh? Yeah, sometimes a shining city on the hill sometimes. Is that? that yeah, that was Ronald Reagan. That was Ronald Reagan, spin. okay, yeah. Yeah, he added the shining. Um, uh, I'm guessing he's not thinking the Stephen King shining. <laughs> City Probably not. No. <laughs> I couldn't help it. I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, episode 19. We were a little delirious, yeah. here, friends. The Shining City Upon a Hill. Uh, no, Winthrop just said a city upon a hill. And he meant it as a good Calvinist, you know, sort of stern Calvinist. He meant it almost in a kind of threatening way that if we shall deal falsely with our God, as he said in that sermon, uh, a model of Christian charity, as it was known. Uh, that the world would ridicule the Puritans. That's what he meant by being a city upon a right. hill. It wasn't seen as a boast, but it has been repurposed as that in countless political speeches mm -hmm. in this uh, uh, sort of enshrined version of American uh, exceptionalism, that from the beginning, we were a city upon a hill. We were separate from, apart from, and rather singular in our specialness, you might say. Uh, but the funny thing is, and, and you know, and here's what I want to try to draw is when you look at all this, as John Thornton has done in his book, John and uh, Thornton and Linda Haywood, that what you find is a bigger picture, not surprisingly. But when we take that kind of micro focus, and I'm, I'm going to suggest that's what American exceptionalism really depends on ultimately, is a kind of micro focus, a kind of closely bounded parochial understanding of these things, it's easy enough to say they're unique because let's face it, if that's all you're looking at, you don't really have a larger frame of reference to compare it to, right? Yeah, that's absolutely right, yeah. Yeah, so uh, when we do that though, when we pull back, when we take some of the borders off this very bordered history of American exceptionalism, what we find is that even the Puritans themselves who are always called down as if from central casting in this story of American exceptionalism as these pious, even liberty supporting. You know, there's no greater canard in early American history than to say that the pilgrims and the Puritans, and for all intents and purposes, they're the same group of religionists coming mm -hmm. out of England, 
that they were coming, they were they were uh, moving away from religious persecution in order to establish what religious, here in the new world? Yeah, religious freedom. As I would say, religious freedom. Yeah, as I would say, religious freedom for themselves. They wanted not so much religious freedom for maybe others, but yeah, their own religious. Well, freedom. wait a minute now. Tom Cotton is not going to like that, Josh. So you know, uh, I'm going to ask you to, to be careful. I'll text uh, him later and apologize. Well, yeah, no, it's true. I mean, for years and years, one of my you know, as teachers, we have our shtick. You know, one of my go-to lines is always. You know, uh, persecuted for their religious beliefs, they came here to establish religious freedom. That would be no and no. Right. Uh, neither of those uh, are true. But this becomes a pillar then of that usable past. You know, of of American exceptionalism, and and it tends to then dis, uh, kind of what to uh, discourage any other more careful consideration, especially now that Tom Cotton's got the feds down on you for doing it, but. <laughs> You know, Ephraim Zimbalist Jr. is going to come pounding through the door of my classroom. Those of you uh, who remember the FBI television, popular television show starring Ephraim Zimbalist Jr. <laughs> That's a reference I don't know. FBI agent. You, got, you lost me on that one. You got to post That's something on the, on the website FBI for that. Agents. <laughs> it's a heroic role. Uh, yeah, but uh, so what Thornton explains in this book is that even the Puritans uh, were part of an effort now in early imperial England, you know, during the reign uh, first of Queen Elizabeth and then her successor, uh, King James, that from this period roughly, uh, and it goes back a bit farther, 1560s, um, certainly, uh, but, but by the 1570s and 80s, that you have England pretty much determined to get in on the share of spoils now uh, to be found in the Western Hemisphere, right? The, the Spanish and the Portuguese had for uh, almost a century by that point demonstrated the, the lucrative, profitable nature of New World uh, Empire. You know, it made Spain arguably the richest nation, certainly of Europe, um, the most powerful nation of, of Europe, if not globally now in this age of, of New World Empires. And so, yeah, England and, and along with the Dutch, by the way, and that's the other point that Thornton makes. Virtually everything they're doing, Josh, they're doing together. So if we're supposed to be exceptional, how come we got a partner? Mm-hmm. Right. You know, and, and we don't, and, and it's one of those hidden and plain sight things because we know that, for example, even in the original 13 colonies, New York wasn't New York Originally, with all the due apologies to Frank Sinatra and New York, New York, New York was what? New York was New Amsterdam, which doesn't work in a song as well. Too many syllables. That's harder for to sing, right? So you got to change it. Exceptionalism and the songs we sing often go together, and and so the Dutch had established a colony that would later become not until the 1660s later become uh, New York under English governance. Uh, and so it's right there. I mean, you know, it wasn't a purely English project. It was two countries that weren't as of yet wealthy enough to contest Spain on its own terms, but who, uh, if they weren't wealthy enough, this certainly they were ambitious enough to do so. And what Thornton describes is a program now, an imperial program, by two relatively undervalued countries. One of them, a small island nation, uh, England, uh, hoping to get in with the big players in the Western Hemisphere in the Imperial game, which would have been Spain and, and uh, to somewhat lesser extent the Portuguese. But it was the Portuguese that, remember, monopolized 
what we call the, the, the slave trade. And so a lot of the value of those New World colonies came through uh, the buying and selling of, of enslaved labor. And that's something that the English and the Dutch are very interested in getting to as well. Keep that in mind as we think about 1619. Now, so what Thornton describes then is a strategy by two relatively undervalued countries who didn't have their own navies as of yet, that is, royal navies. And so they went to their wealthiest, most deep pocket citizens uh, to basically help finance what would become a program of what they called in a privateering. Privateering. Would you like to chime in on what privateering was? Uh, uh, private property is good, right? So that's got to be good, too. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we'd be otherwise tempted to call it piracy. We right. don't want to we don't want to associate capitalism with piracy. Different do we? But yeah, it's a different word. But privateering really do becomes the basis then of what will be the foundations of a capitalist economy involving, you know, the new world empires. But before I get to that, I'm getting ahead of myself because now all you have are uh, a few ships here and there outfitted by, you know, private interests who gain royal permission of one form or another, given a license or, or a patent, as they call them, or a letter of mark, which was essentially just a letter written by somebody with property back home who said that you, the privateer, were sailing under the auspices of that uh, home authority you know, to the extent that that amounted to something, right? It's what separated you from mere piracy because the job of privateers was to raid uh, and uh, attack Spanish and Portuguese ships. Uh, most ideally, they would be treasure galleons. But, and, and I think you have a story, right, of, of one of the first things the Dutch realized uh, when they attacked one of the, the Portuguese ships was it wasn't full of gold. What, what was it carrying? Yeah, there's a story. It must be early in the 16th, uh, sorry, 17th century that the Dutch, uh, as they were trying to free themselves from from the Spanish yoke, as as they would say, uh, began this process of, of naval building and and uh, you know what we would call piracy. But they uh, took a Portuguese ship, expecting to find the kind of wealth you would find on a on a ship like that. And instead, they found a bunch of people, and they had no idea what to do with them, so they just took them to the nearest island and dropped them off. And uh, it turns out what they had done is raided a slave ship. But uh, at that point, they weren't aware enough of, of the value of slaves and slavery. Uh, they didn't have a plantation complex to bring them to. Um, and so literally just uh, were disappointed that they had found human cargo instead of actual cargo and just dropped them at the nearest island, which would have been, I, I assume, a surprise for the enslaved people to just be dropped off in a, in a foreign land like that. Uh, but only later on did they understand, oh, this is something of value that we should be trying to exploit. And then they did become involved in the slave trade. Uh, as much as they could later on. Yeah, and it really does become a basis then a kind of funda a fundamental business model, doesn't it? Yeah. For both the English and the Dutch who will aspire not only to just raiding Spanish or say Portuguese slave ships or, or you know, Spanish plantations along the coast or something. That's that's what makes Francis Drake famous, by, by the way, you know, in American history mm -hmm. where he's, he's depicted it. We always give names like explorers. <laughs> right. Well, that that's one thing to call Francis Drake. Yep. Uh, you know, what he was was a, you know, was a shakedown artist, you know, an extortionist, a, a pillager and a raider of Spanish and Portuguese settlements and a slave trader. Because what they re recognize is that the Spanish and the Portuguese have established a very lucrative 
uh, slave trade across the Atlantic. And boy, you know, they want in on that, the, both the English and the Dutch. And they work in concert here in these privateering expeditions because, as you pointed out, they, as of yet, England, England has no landed colony. Mm-hmm. You know, 1607, if we're going to use that as the first successful English colony you know, in the North American language, uh, mainland, well, that's still in the future. So what they realize is they're very good at you know, sending out these these privateers. Uh, the more colorful name for men like Francis Drake were sea dogs, right? <laughs> sea dogs. And Walter Raleigh, uh, John Hawkins, you know. I mean, there's a roll call of these guys. In fact, the guy who eventually will bring those enslaved people to, to Virginia in 1619 was one of the sea dogs. So uh, my point is that they're creating a system of raid and trade, of, of thievery on the high seas, of selling or fencing, we might say, stolen merchandise. You know, these for some of these Africans, I mean, they're thrice stolen by that point, right? right. They've been stolen by slavers in Africa. They've been sold, uh, stolen again to Portuguese slavers in the Atlantic. And, you know, before they're ever even arriving at their final destination, they're getting stolen yet again by English and Dutch privateers, you know. Uh, and what, uh, I mean, it's successful, Let's give them credit, Josh. Uh, it's so successful. One estimate that Thornton comes up with is that by 1600, uh, privateering and the proceeds from stolen goods, including slaves, amounts to something like 10% of England's gross domestic product. That's crazy. You know? Yeah. And, and so clearly, you know, this incentive by Queen Elizabeth and later Queen James, uh, King James is to create revenue streams. You know, through through property interests in the new world. And let's not forget that, you know, because what we often do in the story of exceptionalism as we get to a colony like John Winthrop's Massachusetts Bay, as we've already said, is to enshrine that story as, uh, you know, the meaning of that story as of, you know, freedom, of religious freedom, Mm -hmm. of common folk. But what we're saying is that this imperial project had very little to do with those themes. Right. had everything to do with revenue uh, and revenue now via a system of uh, privateering, of essentially of commissioned piracy. And, and in fact, they were so successful at it, the English and the Dutch, they realized pretty quickly that they were going to need land bases, you know, a base of operations uh, in the New World, several actually, because look, if you stole you know, gold or silver or, or, you know, you'd probably hightail it back to England. But if you but if you sold or if you stole uh, enslaved people or other kinds of, of goods and commodities, uh, you know, that were germane to the new world, you didn't want to go back to England with those things. They so what no were value, you going to do? Right? Were you going to turn around and sell it to the people you just stole it from? And, you know, the answer is yes. By the way, both the Dutch and the English yeah. will sell stolen goods back to the Portuguese and the Spanish, when they could get away with it, you know, but obviously the Spanish were not happy about this. You get the whole confrontation uh, known as the Spanish Armada in 1588, which I don't know about you, but that's always sort of framed in this exceptional terms as England fighting for its liberty against the evil Spanish. But right. look, the Spanish were pissed off because they had been plundered by these English sea dogs. And so they were coming, you know, to exact a certain amount of payback for that. All right, but as we know, the Armada is defeated. So that gives England now and and the Dutch a kind of open, you know, uh, uh, it's an open season now for the next decade and a half 
uh, for privateering, but they realize they need landed bases. So to formal, it's getting too too lucrative to be done kind of half-assed, you might say, you know, for, for one privateering ship or another to be sent out on their own authority. So what the tendency here is to do what? Is to create a legal and sort of business model that would more efficiently take advantage of these opportunities for, for trade and plunder, you know, uh, and thievery. In other words, you got to get organized. And mm -hmm. so what we see are these new forms of, of legal entities called joint stock companies, which limited the liability of those who were investing. It meant that you could invest to a certain amount. And if the company went broke, you didn't you weren't on the hook for the whole thing. Right. Limited liability, as Asha was talking about a couple of episodes ago. But limited liability now in pursuit of what? In pursuit of revenue streams, mostly through the uh you know, raiding and plundering of Spanish and Portuguese uh, colonies and ships. And for that, you need not only a new corporate form, but you need landed bases because the idea was you couldn't just sail back to England. You needed a landed base to organize uh, your plunder. And furthermore, you needed to grow food to feed your people. You needed an agricultural hinterland to do that. And so that raises the prospect of bringing settlers over to England for what would now be these new land base, these base of operations in North America, the West Indies and elsewhere. Even by the way, I don't know if you how familiar you are, but from reading Thornton, the English are trying to establish colonies in the Amazon region mm -hmm. at one point. You know, what is now Suriname, which was a Dutch colony and, and uh, a French Guyana. But anyway, so some, some out of the way places where they could do their raiding, their pirating, hightail it back to their land base, have a secure supply of food, you know, of agriculture, and maybe a settler population to kind of work it. And, and if not a settler population, then the other available labor supply would be obviously who? Enslaved people, right? Enslaved African people, yeah. So the, the, the people that you're stealing, you know, from the Portuguese, you can put to work as enslaved laborers in these new base uh, operation bases you know, to, to provide the basic laboring necessities uh, to keep those um, bases going. Now, we don't call them bases, though, do we? What, what do we call them? Call them colonies. We call them colonies. And I'm being deliberate here, you know, and using another word, calling something by its name. Because mm -hmm. colony has taken on in the telling of American, you know, the exceptionalism of American history as something valorous, you know, as a right. place where people sought freedom. But, but that's hard to figure when you say the, almost the entire reason for their being was to protect the plundered, you know, uh, the pirate's booty, if you will, of, of these, you know, tr raid and trade operations of the privateers. But it's the Virginia Company then, this newly formed limited liability joint stock company that creates the Virginia Colony. But guess what else? A, a, a similar, exactly similar colony called the New England Company is going to then create what we think of as the New England colonies, where the Puritans are going to go. And even though we tend to, to frame it as this business, in, you know, in terms of American exceptionalism, this business of freedom and liberty and religious freedom, that sort of thing, both the New England uh, establishment of colonies and the Chesapeake, uh, the Virginia colony, not to mention many others, Bermuda, mm -hmm. for example, Barbados, Remember, this was an English colonial system now, even though we try to separate it from those, that are being established for essentially the same reasons. 
In fact, Barbados, they'll double down and turn into a sugar colony, which will create undreamt of wealth for, you know, the, the English who were desirous of the, you know, these revenue streams. There's even one called Providence Island Colony off the coast of Nicaragua, where Puritans, and the reason they're Puritans is because they're all, many of them are wealthy in England. Mm -hmm. Far from being the persecuted, you know, a religious, uh, you know, uh, sort of refugees, these are deep pocket investors in England who have, um, you know, taken on the, the Protestant Reformation, have created their own Calvinist religious sort of community. And so they're financing these ventures, you know, and Providence Island colony off the coast of Nicaragua also attracts, just like Massachusetts does, Puritan settlers. But here's what my point is, I guess, Josh, is that instead of that, that frame, that narrative frame we usually use to explain these people and their reasons for being there, what John Thornton and Linda Hay would do is show us very clearly it was a material interest. And that material interest was not at all incompatible with the religious claims. In fact, it's really from those religious claims, those Calvinist religious claims, that the seedbed of American exceptionalism is sown. Because, you know, they called them Puritans for a reason, right? They figured they were on the one true, correct, holy path that God had uh, aligned for his chosen saints. And if you listen to the religious sermon, you get exceptionalism. But if, as Jerry Maguire said, you follow money, <laughs> what you see is that their real reason, the real financial supportive reason for them being there is this other business. And it's a dirty business of thievery on the high seas, the taking of human cargo, slavery becomes fundamental, obviously, to, uh, you know, the, the, the Virginia colony because the tobacco plantation, but also in New England, because those pious Puritans are sending out ships, as Wendy Warren, the uh, colonial historian that's written the most about this, says, New England, John Winthrop's plantations were just offshore. Mm -hmm. You know, they right. were in Bermuda. They where were you in could Barbados. Grow where you could grow sugar, where you could grow subtropical crops, which you could do in New England. And have slave labor. Yeah. But, but, but underwriting the whole thing as a financial enterprise, sending the ships, and even sending now, remember that hinterland, that idea of food producing? Yeah. Sending wheat and codfish from New England to feed those enslaved populations on a place like Barbados. So there was close integration, close connection across a large area. But we miss all that when we put the border on it, call it American exceptionalism, and take only that parochial view. Right. You know, what, what I'm thinking about right now is that, um, you know, this idea of exceptionalism uh, and this idea of these, these American colonies being these beacons of freedom. One of the things I point out, you know, when I talk about this, this kind of an Atlantic economy that's being built is that if you want to look at the, the big, you know, powers of, of kind of Western Hemisphere colonization, the Portuguese, the Spanish, the English and the French and the Dutch, they're all doing their own things, right? They all got their own ways of mm -hmm. doing things. But one of the things I, I point out is that they're all ultimately after the same thing, right? Well, the methods might be different, but ultimately all those powers, uh, what they're trying to do, their overwhelming desire was to turn colonies into wealth-producing entities whose proceeds would flow directly to the metropole, right? That's the goal. Mm -hmm. um, and mm -hmm. if you're the Spanish, then you happen to you know trip over your own feet and land in a silver mine, then you get to produce wealth by simply digging it out of the ground. Um, if you're the Portuguese, you ultimately will find you know gold and diamonds in, in interior Brazil, a few centuries later, but for the Dutch and the English, particularly as they try to develop North America, there's not as obvious of, of a means of 
finding that wealth and, and getting it back to, um, to to England itself. And so what what they're doing, what the English are doing, what the Dutch are doing, which we're obviously less focused on here, is just trying to find any way of, of finding profits. And if that's piracy, that's piracy. If it's slavery, it's slavery. If it's you know producing wheat to sell the, the plantations, that's what they're going to do. But it's not that different than what the Spanish are doing. Or I'm sorry, the, the goal is not that different from what the Spanish are doing, which is ultimately just get some wealth, figure out how to get wealth out of that territory and get it back to the place where, where people desire it, which is ultimately right, back yeah. home. Because that's how, I mean, that's how the Spanish crown and subsequently how the Dutch and even the English crown would build armies and navies mm-hmm. that could then consolidate that, that wealth um, ambition you know, glo- globally. Let me, let me give you one more example. Just because it gets so caught up in the in the idea of exceptionalism, most people have probably heard of the Roanoke colony. Yeah, yeah. I'm guessing the mystery. But usually, yeah. in what in what guise? You know, we we mystify it. Right. You know, we say the, the lost yeah. colony of Roanoke, and that becomes the central narrative thrust of this early failed effort to create a colony before Jamestown. But here's what we usually don't say: the reason why Walter Raleigh. And his deep pocket friends are investing in this island colony just off the coast of North Carolina uh, called Roanoke is because Raleigh sees it as potentially a slave trading colony Mm. for the pirating, um, privateering, um, you know, work that the Dutch and English were carrying out in the in, you know, in the Caribbean. Right. you know, when we think of Pirates of the Caribbean, we think of a kind of almost cartoonish sort of swashbuckling, you know. But but really, the original Pirates of the Caribbean were were <laughs> well-financed English and Dutch, and in many cases, Puritan, you know, uh, trading concerns, you know. Right. And, and so Roanoke doesn't work for a variety of reasons. And there are many others, by the way, that are tried and, and, and fail until they really become more adept organizationally at supplying these colonies um, that the, the, the reason for them, you know, was among other things, you know, connecting to that West Indies, what's becoming an Atlantic world trading economy, incredibly lucrative. It's going to change world history. It's going to become, you know, let's, let's, let's call things by their name. This is what we're really talking about here in, in, in these examples uh, you know, are the, are the roots of, of capitalism. Mm-hmm. Would you agree? Yeah. I mean, and and what you can kind of see, what you're getting at, I think, is that the roots of capitalism are often, in many ways, based on kleptocracy, right? That this is mm-hmm. this is thievery, essentially, that's creating these these financial, uh, you know, systems that, that ultimately become the basis of this profit-driven motive, you know, profit motive-driven uh, idea of, of how colonies should work. The Spanish version is very different than what the English and, and Dutch are doing because, again, if you can't find silver, you got to find these other means. And in many ways, finding those other means is is creating this capitalist global economy first in this Atlantic world and then eventually across the rest of the world. And you know, the link between slavery and capitalism, by the way, is is a very strong one, as the sixteen nineteen project pointed out, but also as earlier scholars like um, is it Eric Williams who writes on slavery and mm-hmm. capitalism, mm-hmm. Uh, and that's like the nineteen thirties or forties where he's he's writing that. Um, so yeah, this is this is absolutely the basis of this capitalist world system, and it's it's a basis that's built on some some ugly ugly things. It's not just modern capitalism that has these, uh, these this ugliness. It's there right from the beginning. It's in the foundation. Yeah, com- companies that we know today, like Lloyd's of London, 
you know, or Barclays Bank. Yeah. Jardine, uh, Jardine Matheson. I was just reading uh, Jardine Matheson was uh, enormously involved in the, the opium trade in, in Canton. Uh, it's still one of the top 200 uh, comp- uh, corporations in the world today, but its its wealth is literally based on the illicit trade of opium in, in into China. Yeah, and I was going to say for those others, it was the slave trade. So take your pick, right. opium or slaves. You know, I mean, this is the the exceptional pass that we want to hold up. Look, let me let me finish this bit by saying, so okay, so what's in a date? 1607, 1619. Tom Cotton imagines 1607 is the story he prefers of story of American exceptionalism. 1619, Nicole Hannah Jones, the arrival of slaves. Mm-hmm. Um, well, when we look at them. Again, just to, to hammer the point home, what happens in 1619 is that a, a privateer shows up in the Chesapeake. By privateer, I mean a vessel committed to privateering, essentially a pirate ship, okay? Mm-hmm. But a pirate ship with permission <laughs> from home shows up with a letter of mark from a, from a Dutch merchant, all right? So that was the, that's what gave it legitimacy. The captain, however, the ship was an English ship. It was an English privateering ship. And the, and the captain of the ship was one of these, his name was Elfrith, was one of these sea dogs, right, of the of this sort of, you know, uh, Francis Drake sort. Um, and he drops off slaves. Uh, and, and, you know, for, for, for sale. Slaves that had been stolen from a Portuguese slaver that was coming out of Angola headed for Mexico, for Veracruz, Mexico. Mm-hmm. But Elfrith and his um, his partner, who had a different ship, uh, uh, stop the slaver just before it arrives at its destination, take as many slaves as they can carry, as they can steal, basically, from the Portuguese, uh, and hightail it up to Jamestown to drop them off. Uh, actually, it was Point Comfort, which is just down the James River from Jamestown, but close enough. It's a Virginia colony, right? So 1619 and 1607 are essentially... Of, of, of the same fabric. Right. Uh, that what we imagine one being versus the other is really a storytelling conceit. Or even, let's ne- never mind Jamie, what if we go with, you know, with, uh, with Plymouth Rock or the Puritan arrival in Massachusetts? The Dutch, remember the, the pilgrims are coming out of Leiden, Holland, right? Mm-hmm. They'd already left England. They were English religionists. They were Puritans, basically. They go to Holland. Holland is too liberal for their taste. <laughs> Too much so the Dutch say, well, we got a better deal for you. Let's send you. And originally they were going to say, we have a colony called New Amsterdam. We'll send you to New Amsterdam, right? Where yeah. we're running, you know, these privateering raids. And you can, you guys can grow, you know, wheat and, and follow your church precepts, etc. And only at the last second are the pilgrims saying, well, no, we think this other spot's better. But this other spot, Plymouth, was essentially part of that English claim then in what we call New England, where the Puritans are going to follow them 10 years later to Massachusetts Bay. So Plymouth or Massachusetts Bay, take your pick, within 10 years of each other, are being established for exactly the same purpose. In other words, to provide for a base of operations with English settler folk who can go about the business of growing wheat wheat and, and, and fishing for cod and to supply the other colonies. Uh, in what is now a thoroughly becoming a thoroughly integrated economic system, the forerunner of capitalism throughout the Western, you know, the West Indies and the Atlantic world of of shipping, raiding, slave trading, uh, et cetera. You know, so what 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 we really do with these, you know, with these histories is we create a new storytelling conceit and we call it, 
you know, American exceptionalism. And we and we take a much more narrow, foreshortened view of some religious sermons that are being given, you know, to imagine that the whole purpose of it, therefore, was, uh, you know, more valorous, noble, supportive of these uh, ideals, you know, that we like to uh, enshrine, these ideals of freedom, liberty, uh, etc. And just to put a, a postscript on this, you know, Tom, Tom Cotton was focused on this idea of accuracy, right? That uh, we need better accuracy right. to, to protect American history. But it, what, right. what we really see is that it's very possible to put together a bunch of accurate elements, right? A bunch of stories that are quote unquote accurate and put them together in a way that is ultimately uh, a set of lies, right? That the, the story told by a bunch of accurate details can still mm -hmm. be a lie. And, and essentially, yeah. that's what the story of American exceptional is. exceptionalism is. It's not that there's nothing in American history that should be valorized. It's not that there's no good moments in American history. It's not that there's no good ideas in, in American history. But once you put that frame of exceptionalism on, on top of it, what you're doing is taking those particular moments and letting them tell the entire story instead of, as you were saying, you know, widening the scope, allowing more ideas in and telling a story that is not just full of accurate moments, but ultimately tells a better and more accurate version of, of the history as well. Yes, my friend, very well said. And I think that takes us now into our outro segment where we can uh, leave our listeners with a, uh, a few thoughts. Yeah, I'm really glad you made that point, Josh, about, um, you know, essentially about calling things by their names. Look, um, you know, I was I tell my students because I'm not unaware of the fact that when you when you approach this storied reputation of American exceptionalism, that, that it's, a, it's it can be a hard thing to swallow. You know, it can create a certain amount of resentment. You know, why is this person debunking, you know, our most cherished uh, ideals as if to invalidate who we ourselves identify as being, you know? And and so I tell my students, I said, look, we have to think of ourselves as therapists, you know, and we're putting U.S., what we call U.S. history. Uh, that is the story of American exceptionalism. We're putting it on the couch and we're trying to get into the past because you know, that's what therapists do. They want you to get into those those hard truths of your past so that you have a chance to what? Unburden yourself, you know, con confront the, you know your own damage and Heal. and hopefully lead a healthier, you know, yeah. more more productive life, right? And I saw a really nice expression of that um, because this isn't just a, some sort of shame and blame approach to history. It's I prefer to think of it as calling things by their name and and I by their true name. And I get that from one of my favorite writers. Um, uh, uh, Rebecca Solnit, right, who writes um, often about history, uh, though not exclusively about history, but one of her recent books is called Calling Things by Their Names. And she has a piece in there about the monuments battle, you know, the statues and the Confederate statues and all that stuff, and, and which in their own way speak to a strain of American exceptionalism. And what Solnit writes is, calling things by their true names cuts through the lies that excuse, buffer, muddle, disguise, avoid, or encourage inaction, encourage indifference and obliviousness. It's not all there is to changing the world, but it's a, it's a key step. And, and she writes, you know, when the subject is grim, I think of the act of naming as diagnosis. Though not all diagnosed diseases are curable, once you know what you're facing, 
you're better equipped to know what you can do about it. And, you know, Josh, as I've looked out the window, you know, of the history of now over the last several weeks of our podcast, and we've seen these very real confrontations, you know, uh, of people on the wrong side of police brutality, on the wrong side of enforced poverty, on the wrong side of injustice, that, you know, what, what you and I have, have come to again and again is, is that, you know, we need, we need stories that make us well. We need stories that help us heal, not stories that keep us sick. And I think that's, you know, Solnit's point, you know, precisely. It's, it's not to feel bad about something that we look at these, you know, rather more stark histories. And I would, I would argue more accurate and truer histories. But rather we do so in order to understand you know, this this burden that we've been carrying as a nation all these years without acknowledging it, you know, and, and, and that the dysfunction that that has sown, the neuroses that that has sown is, is what we see when we look out, you know, side the window. So, yeah, not, not shame and blame, but, you know, finding an avenue for, for health and healing and, and, and honesty. What do you think? Yeah, and, you know, one of the things that, that kind of brings up for me is that we're really good at diagnosing other societies a lot. I mean, I think you see this when you teach particularly world history is that students like to look at other countries as particularly or, or societies as they're in these decline phase and say, well, why didn't they do this? Why didn't they do that? But it's not as easy when you're living in the moment. And, and I think we see that in our current moment where, you know, decay is all around us. Decline is all around us. Uh, maybe the, the solutions should be obvious, but, but as long as there's a power structure in place that's still benefiting from the system as it is, it's really hard to get beyond the diagnosis. It's really hard to diagnose, first of all, um, in, in many ways, uh, but it's really hard to, to fix things as long as enough people are still benefiting from the system as it is. And that's what's true in 19th century China, where you know students love to point out all the things the Chinese should have done in the 19th century to, uh, to fix their decline. Uh, it was true in you know late 18th century, early 19th century Ottoman Empire, um, you know, which again, people love to diagnose and say what they should have done right. Uh, but it's much harder to do when you're living in that society and, and the structure's in place and there's people who are uh, dedicated to keeping that structure in place. Um, we can diagnose, we can say what the problems are, but until we get enough people to realize that the system is not working for what it's supposed to work for, that it's serving only those in power, uh, it's hard to get real change to happen. So diagnose certainly, but then we also got to convince enough people at the moment in the now, as we like to say, um, that the diagnosis is is terminal. Is that how we should say it? <laughs> well, you know, you used a great, uh, when we were chatting before the broadcast, they used a great uh, kind of metaphor. I thought you said, you, know, you look back at these examples, you know, of, of a nation that's about to crash and burn or something, or an empire that's about to crash and burn. And, you know, it's like you, you see them walking toward the cliff. Yeah. And, and they may even see the cliff. Right. You know, but they keep walking down the line. They don't halt their advance. And so what, what's going to happen is almost certainty, right? They're right. going to go off the cliff. And, uh, and, I, and I know you would agree, I think, that, you know, that in looking at the system, as it were, you know, the reason why the system keeps advancing toward the cliff is because, in effect, that's what the system was, was designed to do. Right. In other words, un unlike Jeff Daniels' character back in that, that piece we played you guys, you know, where he later comes around and says, ah, oh, but this isn't really America. The America, you know, that, that really once existed, you know, is this sort of, you know, honorable uh, history. But, you know, as I've tried to point out today, the history was never that honorable, if that's what you're looking at. I mean, it was set up 
as a system of kleptocracy. Right. And so as it approaches the cliff, to me, the only uh, remedy for that, you know, is, among other things, to tell a different story. Yeah. You know, to say, wait, wait, that's not who we are. If you keep to Tom uh, Cotton's script, you're going to go right off that cliff, aren't you? Yeah. And this just as maybe a way out of, of a way to end this. I can quote from the great philosopher Jeff Rosenstock, uh, who says <laughs> in his song, No Dream, uh, the, o- the only end game for capitalism is dystopia. And we know all about it, but we just don't know what to do. So welcome back, Chris. I guess welcome back me as well, but welcome back listeners also. Sorry for the brief hiatus. We are back on our weekly schedule from now on, and we will talk to you again next week. Take care. Nobody is innocent. It's a sin when you play into ignorance. Another one closing your eyes again so you don't have to see what's happening. Then now what's going on in these streets? You can't live by what you see on TV. Stuck, stuck in a cycle, so we repeat. Stuck, stuck in a cycle, so we repeat.